That's Father, we pray that you would cause us to be overwhelmed with your radical and scandalous grace. Lord, we pray that you would cause us to feel how unworthy we are to be recipients of your grace. And we pray, Lord, that you would use our awareness of your grace to make us those who are gracious toward others. Keep us from making unwarranted assumptions about other people. Help us to love people. And Lord, we pray that you would also cause us to fear you, lest we presume upon your grace. And Lord, we pray that the awareness of your grace would would have more impact upon us than we can even begin to articulate or pray for. So we commit ourselves to you. We entrust ourselves to the good work of your Holy Spirit, to the unparalleled truth of your word, to the power of your grace in Christ. Amen. <clears throat> I wanted to... I wanted to give you an illustration of, of grace that would make you feel like, well, that's not right. It shouldn't be that way. She shouldn't have done that, or he shouldn't have done that. And what, what came to mind was Lady Bird Johnson, Lyndon B. Johnson's wife. Lyndon B. Johnson was famously unfaithful to his wife, repeatedly unfaithful to his wife. And his biographer said of him, that he was just going to pass over all of this because it had so little to do with his political life. And then his biographer was confronted with this woman named Alice Glass. And what became apparent to the biographer is that Alice Glass was Lyndon B. Johnson's one true love. And essentially, whatever she told him to do, he did it. She advised him to run for the Senate in 1942. He, he did it. She advised him to have himself photographed from the left side. He did it. She advised him to wear a certain kind of tie, to have longer sleeves on his shirt, to hide his long, gangly arms. He did it. Anything she said, he did it. And the biographer, the biographer recounts the time when he actually encountered Mrs. Johnson after Mrs. Johnson knew that he had learned about Alice. And I want to read to you from Robert Caro's account of what it was like. And this is so poignant, I think, because of the way that the biographer is ashamed for this woman, for Lady Bird Johnson. He recounts, he says, one evening our phone rang, and it was Posh. This is a man named Posh Oldtorf, who was one of Johnson's advisors. Bird knows you've been to Marlin. Marlin, Texas was where Alice Glass was from. He said in a panic-stricken voice, so she knows you know about Alice. At that time, Robert Caro writes, I was interviewing Mrs. Johnson every few weeks at her office at the Johnson Library, and I was scheduled to see her that Saturday. On Friday, one of her secretaries came to my desk in the reading room. Mrs. Johnson would like to see you at the ranch on Saturday, she said. Come for lunch. 
We sat in the dining room, she at the head of the table, I at her right hand. The stenographer's notebook in which I took notes was to the right of my plate. And after she began talking, I didn't look up from it. Without a word of preamble, she started talking about Alice Glass. She had known her slightly when she, Lady Bird, was a student at the University of Texas and Alice had been working in the Capitol. Even then, Lady Bird said, she was quite an intellectual girl and you felt destined for more exciting things than being a legislator's secretary. Then, she said, when we saw them again in Washington, she was even prettier and just dressed so beautifully. She was very tall and elegant, really beautiful, in a sort of Amazonian way. I kept taking notes, my eyes down on my notebook. I found it impossible to look at her. She talked about Alice Glass's estate. Quote, Lady Bird Johnson, my eyes were just out on stems. They would have interesting people from the world of art and literature and politics. It was the closest I ever came to a salon in my life. There was a dinner table with ever so much crystal and silver. And she talked some more about Alice, about the contrast between Alice and her, with nothing in her voice but admiration. I remember Alice in a series of long and elegant dresses and me in, well, much less elegant. She talked about how Alice had given Lyndon such good advice about cufflinks, for example. Lyndon always followed that. Lyndon followed religiously any advice Alice gave him, she said. There was no looking up. She kept returning to Alice's height and beauty. Once, she recalled, when Charles Marsh was talking about the threat of rising Adolf Hitler, the threat uh, the, the rising Adolf Hitler was posing for the world, she, Lady Bird, had said, Maybe Alice can help us fight him. She's so tall and blonde, she looks like a Valkyrie. The admiration in her voice never wavered. And then Robert Caro says, I'm sure that I was too old to blush. I just, I'm sure I felt as if I was blushing. The next week we met in her office for another long, immensely helpful interview on other topics, during which I was able to look at her again. You know, you read an account like this, and I think, you, I think all of us respond, Lyndon B. Johnson did not deserve a wife like that. Lyndon B. Johnson did not deserve grace like that. She should not have been so gracious. In, any, um, even this guy, Robert Caro, who's a Jew, the word he uses to describe Lady Bird Johnson is gracious. She should not have been so gracious. She should have left him. And if we're, if we're able to reckon with our hearts and our histories and our present, I think we would respond, God should not be so gracious. God should not be so gracious to us. And when we read the Old Testament, I think we should also respond, God should not be so gracious. He should not be so gracious to Israel, and he should not have future plans. He should have left Israel, and he should have left us. That's what we're dealing with here in Romans 11, verses 1 through 10 this morning. I would invite you to turn to Romans 11, and we'll be looking together at verses 1 through 10. And perhaps as you make your way there, uh, you'll allow me once again to summarize where we've been and, and where we're going here this morning. So we've been talking about how at the end of Romans 8, Romans 8, 31 through 39, Paul comes to this glorious, climactic, 
uh, magnificent statement of how, about how there is nothing in heaven or on earth, no height, nor depth, nor any other created thing that could ever separate God's people from God's love in Christ. And then it's like he's anticipating the question, well, what about the Jewish people who have rejected the Messiah and apparently been separated from God's love in Christ? And what Paul starts to do in 9, 1-5 is articulate his evangelistic burden that he feels for the Jewish people. And then he asserts in 9, 6, it's not as though the word of God has failed. And then he begins to explain how all, all across Israel's history, there are examples of God choosing some people and not others, even within the family of Abraham. So God chose Isaac, but not Ishmael. God chose Jacob, but not Esau. And then in response to the anticipated objection, is this not unjust of God to do this? Paul teaches in Romans 9, 14 to 18, in accordance with the Old Testament, God doesn't owe mercy to anyone. Everyone is condemned before God, and God will show mercy to whom he shows mercy, and he determines who receives that mercy. And then, in, in response to the objection, well, why would God condemn us? Why would he hold us responsible if he's the one doing the foreordaining, the predestining, the choosing? And Paul explains that people are responsible even though God is sovereign. And then he begins to do something that's going to that's going to dictate really a lot of what happens at the end of Romans 9 and into Romans 10, he begins to show that the Jewish people didn't deserve God's grace any more than the Gentiles did. The Jews came into God's mercy, into God's salvation, the same way that the Gentiles did, and that is by mercy. Mercy is not owed, and the Jewish people needed mercy just as much as the Gentiles did. And then beginning in chapter 9, verse 30, and moving, into chapter, moving through chapter 10, verse 4, Paul explains that righteousness is not attained by works. It's attained by faith. And then in 10, 5 through 13, he explains how justification by faith works. You have to believe with your heart and confess with your mouth, and you'll receive this righteousness by faith. Then in 10, 14 through 21, where we were last week, he explains that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And then he deals with the, 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 the reality that the Jews did hear, but faith didn't come for them. And his explanation for that is their unbelief was prophesied. And that leads him to 11:1, 1, where he says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? And, and this is what he's... This is, this is what he's going to deal with in 11, 1 through 6, this question, has God rejected his people? And then in 11, 7 through 10, he's going to explain how uh, there's a, there, there are seed of the woman and seed of the serpent. So we'll begin with this question, has God rejected his people? <clears throat> there are certain approaches to Christian theology that conclude that the answer to Paul's question is yes. God has rejected his people. He's done with the Jews. He's taken the kingdom away from them decisively, definitively, finally, ultimately. And he's given it to the church. And I want to submit to you that that's not the way that Paul answers the question. Look at Romans 11.1. 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? Meaning, it's clear, isn't it, from context, that Paul is talking about the Jewish people. And Paul's answer is, by no means. This is meganoita. May it never be. It's like Paul is saying, don't even let that thought exist in your mind. Has God rejected his people? No. 
And then he starts giving proof. What he's going to do for the rest of this, this section in verses, rest of verse 1 through verse 6, is he's going to prove that God has not rejected his people. Look at his first proof at the, in the middle of verse 1 there. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Do you see what Paul's doing? It's like Paul is saying, don't discount the evidence Sometimes Christians do this. Christians some come to certain conclusions, maybe about other people, maybe about churches, and then they see counter evidence, and their attitude is, well, Paul, Paul, Paul doesn't count. Of course he doesn't count. And Paul's like, no, I count. I'm a Jew. I count. You cannot discount the evidence of me. What Paul is saying is, I'm evidence that God has a remnant of Jewish people. That's what Paul is saying. And I want to say to Christians who look at other Christians and they say, well, there's no compassion there. I want to say, no, no, look at the evidence of compassion. Well, there's no authenticity there. No, look at the evidence of authenticity. Don't assume that you know. Don't assume, so I'm trying to apply this here to us, because what's happening in Paul's day is people are making assumptions. They're making, there are no Jews who are Christians. And Paul's like, yes, there are. Look at me. There's no love in the church. Yes, there is. Look at the evidence. Let the evidence count. I myself am an Israelite, Paul says, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. And now here, Paul quotes Psalm 94, 14, which I want to read to you in context. So Psalm 94, um, the psalmist says, for the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. He's talking about the Jewish people, God's heritage. So I submit to you that if your theology says something like this, God is done with the Jews, I think your theology is unbiblical. It's running contrary to Psalm 94, 14. It's running contrary to Romans 11, 1 and 2. Romans 11:2 God has not rejected his people. Paul uses the same term in Greek that was used to translate Psalm 94 from Hebrew into Greek. He uses the same line. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And then it's like Paul it's like Paul has said, "All right, you've looked at me evidence and you've discounted the evidence of me, the the, the fact that I prove that there's a Jewish remnant." And he says, all right, let's go to the Old Testament and let's consider someone who was really knowledgeable, someone with prophetic insight. And let's look at the way that he made unwarranted assumptions. And I think Paul is essentially saying, church in Rome, you are making unwarranted assumptions about there not being a continuing, a continuing Jewish remnant. And what I want to do is I want to say, even if you're Elijah, you are prone to that mistake. So th I think this is why Paul goes to this instance. Look at what he says here in 11.2 in the middle. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. So this, it's interesting that that's Paul's description of the, the, the narrative that Chris read for us earlier in the service. That Elijah, the word appeals here is the word that we've seen in Romans 8, interceding. And, and so what Elijah is doing is interceding with God against Israel. That's Paul's understanding of what Elijah's doing. 
And then, he, and then he gives a brief summary of what Elijah said. Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars. And I alone am left. And they seek my life. And you know, in Elijah's day, that's a pretty good summary. Right? Because, because Elijah had that great contest with the prophets of Baal. And uh, he, they, they, they get finished with that whole thing. The fire falls from heaven. They kill the prophets of Baal. And Jezebel still wants to kill Elijah, at which point Elijah turns tail and runs. And then this is what he says. And then the Lord says to him, Paul asks here in verse 4, what is God's reply to him? And then Paul uh, presents to us what, Paul's, what the, the Lord says in response to Elijah. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now, before we go on in Paul's argument to his conclusion that he draws from this, I, I want us to think here about Paul's presentation of that narrative dealing with Elijah. Elijah, someone with prophetic insight, someone anointed by the Holy Spirit to speak the truth of God's word. Elijah, I mean, you know, Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Elijah is getting things wrong, dead wrong. And, and what he's doing is he's drawing conclusions from his limited experience. And then he's extrapolating that conclusion and making a universal statement. I alone am left. Okay? Now, he's had, he's had real experiences that point in a certain direction. But he doesn't know everything. He is not aware of the fact that God has reserved for himself these 7,000 people whom he has not encountered who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And, and the reason I'm kind of harping on this is because I think, you know, maybe it's just my experience, limited experience, but you let the one who has ears to hear, hear. If this doesn't apply to you, just let it roll off, okay? But I seem to hear Christians often say things like, no one prays. No one's praying for me, or no one reads the Bible, no one studies the Bible, or no one's doing evangelism, or no one's living sacrificially, or maybe no one's confessing their sin. No one's dealing with the real stuff that's going on in their lives. No one's really willing to deal with the darkness inside them. And I think in response to those kinds of blanket statements, what we can apply to our hearts is this truth that God knows those who are his, and those who are his will bear fruit. God knows. God knows. And I think one of the messages here for us that Paul is saying is, God has his elect remnant, and that remnant will respond to the word of God. That remnant is not bowing the knee to Baal in Elijah's day, and that remnant in our day is fervent in prayer is earnest about Bible study, is eager to evangelize, is eager to make sacrifices, and in appropriate contexts, and with appropriate people, is more than willing to deal with the darkness inside and acknowledge it, and more than willing to have conversations that need to be had when they need to be had. Let's not make assumptions about things that we really don't know. 
Okay, now back to Paul's argument. So Paul is arguing, look, my existence as an Israelite who's a Christian proves that there is a Jewish remnant. And then he argues, remember this Elijah episode where the Lord said, I have 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Look at the conclusion he draws from this here in verse 5. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Now, what Paul has done here is he has inferred from that narrative with Elijah. He has drawn the conclusion that God is faithful to his word and that God always maintains an elect remnant. And look at what he says about this remnant. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant, and the ESV renders this phrase, chosen by grace. And then Paul goes on, and what he's going to do now is he's going to explain in verse 6 that idea of what it looks like to be chosen by grace. Look at verse 6. But if it is by grace, the ESV renders this, it is no longer on the basis of works. I think some other translations are superior here. They drop out uh, the, the, the temporal idea, and, and they take uketi as an inferential particle, not as a temporal particle, and then they, and they just render it. It is not on the basis of works. I think that's a better way to render this, because it's not the case that Paul thought it was ever by works. Paul... Paul doesn't think that, it was, that you ever got your way into God's grace by works. He knows that. He knows that Joshua 24 tells us that when Abraham lived beyond the river, he worshiped other gods. So God mercifully, graciously appeared, revealed himself to this idolater named Abraham and made promises to him. Abraham didn't do works to get himself into God's grace. Paul knows this and teaches it. If it is by grace, it is not on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Do you catch that? If you work your way into it, it's not grace. If you made the right choices to trigger it, it's not grace. If you sacrificed an appropriate amount, an appropriate amount that, that set the thing in motion, it's not grace. There's a remnant chosen by grace. What this means is, that people get chosen not because of what they do, but because of God's grace. God is faithful to his word. There's always a remnant. And he chooses according to grace. You know what this does for us and to us? If we, if we really get this, if we really understand that, that this is, uh, you, you, could, you could render this, um, he chooses according to the election of grace. I think they don't render it that way because they don't want anyone to think that someone like Grace Kirk has been elected to something, you know, like voted in or something like that. But it's an election of grace, meaning it's a gracious choice. If we really get this, we will find that all grounds for boasting in our lives have been removed. And we have we have no basis on which to claim that we are superior to anyone else. We'll, if we really get this, it will produce humility as a sort of bedrock virtue in us. If we get this, we will know that we have no more earned God's grace than we have saved ourselves. We have no more earned God's grace. We didn't save ourselves. We didn't choose our way in. We didn't work our way in. 
God graciously, mercifully sent Jesus. God graciously, mercifully made it so that we heard the gospel. And God graciously, mercifully included us by awakening us, by causing our eyes to see and our ears to hear and our hearts to live in response to the gospel. God mercifully, graciously did this. And you know what this is going to do? This is going to liberate us fully and completely from any form of performance Christianity. i got to read my Bible to be a good Christian. No, you don't. I've got to make sure I come on Sunday. To, no, 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 no. Uh, you, don't, you don't have to perform. Tim Keller said something to this effect. This is a rough paraphrase. He said something to the effect of, other religions, not the gospel, say, work to establish the verdict. Christianity says, the gospel has established the verdict, and we work in response to it. So I'm not saying don't read your Bible. Don't hear me say that. I'm not saying you don't need to come to church. You do need to be here. The, the New Testament issues a command. Let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And I'll be honest with you. If you only show up ever so often, we're going to have concerns about your soul. We're going to think maybe, maybe you really don't love Jesus. Maybe you really don't want to sing his praise. Maybe you really don't want to hear from him. And that's going to cause us concern for you. But awareness of God's gracious choice will free us from every form of performance Christianity. It will also, awareness of the election of grace or God's gracious choice, will enable authenticity, real authenticity. It will enable us to say, I didn't earn my way into this, and I don't have to somehow earn my keeping of this. I can be real about who I am and what I deal with. Oh, third, second thing, first thing, no more performance Christianity. Second thing, real authenticity. Third thing, awareness of God's gracious election will ground our security in God's grace. Our confidence that we're saved now and saved forever is rooted in the grace of God. That will ground your security. If you know nothing, Jesus said, um, they're in my Father's hand and no one can snatch them out of, out of my Father's hand. And if you know the Father picked me up, he's got me in his hand, and I can't even jump my way out of his hand, you will be secure in your salvation. Your, your security in God's grace is grounded, should be grounded, in God's gracious choice. Fourth, awareness of God's free grace will enable sacrificial living. We, we feel no guilted compulsion because we don't live according to performance Christianity. We don't need to feel guilt. We, we can really pursue sacrificial living, sacrificing for other people, sacrificing our finances, making sacrifice for the church, whatever. We can pursue sacrificial living because of the power of God's grace. God's grace is scandalous. Any, any honest evaluator would look at us and our lives and the living God and respond the same way we respond to Lady Bird Johnson. There is no way she should be so good to that man. There is no way she should talk that way about that homewrecker, Alice Glass. She is so stinking gracious. He does not deserve that. She does not deserve that. 
God's grace is scandalous. Embrace it. It's liberating, enabling, grounding, and motivating. Uh, This morning, I listened to this uh, podcast that Dr. York did with his wife, uh, Herschel and Tanya York. And she talked about a time in her life when she came to understand that God could not love us more or less than he does. He loves us the way that Christ loves us. And this is what she said. She said, prior to this realization that happened through her husband's preaching, she said, I liked to, to help the Lord to love me a little better by doing good things. And then she said when she heard, when she heard Dr. York say, God could not love you more or less than he does. He loves you like Christ. She said that God's grace blanketed her heart and and protected her from those wrong conclusions. We are more sinful than we can imagine. We are more loved than we've dared to dream. So, 11, 1 through 6, has God rejected his people? No. God's grace is making sure that there's an elect remnant in the Old Covenant and in the New Covenant. And I think that it's true that the Lord Jesus, the bride of the ch- uh, sorry, the bridegroom of the church, the bride of Christ, he probably doesn't appreciate it when people talk about the church the way that Elijah talked about Israel. He probably doesn't like that. That's my bride you're talking about. That's my bride. You're talking like she's not faithful to me. Moving into this next section, 11, 7 through 10, uh, Paul is going to He's going to assert here that the remnant has been saved and the rest have been hardened. So there's always this remnant according to grace. And what Paul's now going to do is explain that this remnant has always been saved. Meanwhile, the rest have always been hardened. So look at 11.7. What then, Paul asks? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. The elect is that that remnant according to grace, that 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee to Baal, and that's in the Old Covenant. In the New Covenant, it's people like Paul. It's people like John, who was also a Jew. Peter, who was also a Jew. We could go on and on naming apostles and early Christians, all of whom were Jews. This elect remnant has always obtained what Israel was seeking. Israel, as a whole, the nation failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it. The rest were hardened. And then Paul goes all the way back to Deuteronomy, and he's going to establish this from Scripture in verse 8. What he does is he chooses lines from Deuteronomy 29.4, which let me, let me read you what that verse says. He's going, to, he's going to choose lines from three different passages, Deuteronomy 29, Isaiah 6, and Isaiah 29. Listen to what Moses says to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 29. And, and I think the context of this is important. The people of Israel have come out of Egypt. They've, they've come to the Jordan River. They're about to enter into the promised land to inherit the land. And as Moses is giving them the book of Deuteronomy, listen to what he says to them in Deuteronomy 29.4. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. They're about to cross into the land. Moses is giving them the word of God. And he's saying, God hasn't given you the heart that you need to keep this law. Now, 
I think if we were to say to Moses, wait a minute, Moses, are you saying there's no remnant? I think he would say, no, of course there's a remnant. Look at these people that are so eager to hear my teaching. Look at these people who, when I say something like that, they fall on their knees and they cry out to God and say, God, give us the hearts that we need. And, and look at these people taking such careful notes on what I'm doing here. Of course there's a remnant. But the nation at large, they don't have the heart that they need. And then Isaiah, listen, to, you know Isaiah's commission, I'm sure. Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, he gets this terrible um, task. He's told in Isaiah 6, 9, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes. It's, it's, it's as though the Lord is saying to Isaiah, make it so that what Moses said about them continues to be the case. And then in Isaiah 29, in verse 10, Isaiah says, the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit... <clears throat> of stupor or deep sleep, and has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers. And Paul brings aspects of all three of those verses together, and he says here in 11.8, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, that's Isaiah 29.10, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, that's Isaiah 6.9, down to this very day, that's Deuteronomy 29 verse 4. So what Paul is doing is he's saying, look, the way that the nation as a whole has responded to the Lord Jesus is the way that the nation of Israel responded to Moses and Elijah and Isaiah and all the prophets. But there's still a remnant according to grace. Because as he had just said in verse 7, the elect obtained it. And then, and then he backs up what he quotes from Isaiah in verse 9. He says, and David says, and here he's quoting Psalm 69, and in the con in the context of Psalm 69, David is talking about how his brothers, his mother's sons, have rejected him. So it's Jewish people who have rejected David. David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a, and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So David, in Psalm 69, is praying against Israelites, Jewish people, who have rejected him as their king. He's their rightful king. He's the forerunner of Jesus, and Jewish people have rejected him, and he's praying against them in accordance with what uh, Moses and Elijah have said, and that's what Paul is presenting as proof that it's really always been this way. There's enmity between the seed of the serpent, which surprisingly, even Jewish people are seed of the serpent, and seed of the woman, the remnant. Um, as I was thinking about this, I was blessed to come across a, a hymn by John Newton and William Cooper that responds, I think, in, in a biblical way to um, the kinds of themes that we're seeing and, and the kinds of prayers that David prays and the kinds of statements that Moses, Moses says here. The hymn is entitled, or it's called, The Narrow Way. And here's how John Newton and William Cooper, I don't know which of them wrote this, but this is what they say. What thousands never knew the road what thousands hate it when it's known? None but the chosen tribes of God will seek or choose it for their own. A thousand ways end in ruin. I'm sorry, let me back up. A thousand ways in ruin end. One only leads to joys on high. By that, my willing steps ascend, pleased with a journey to the sky.
No more I ask or hope to find delight or happiness below. Sorrow may well possess the mind that feeds where thorns and thistles grow. The joy that fades is not for me. I seek immortal joys above. There, glory without end shall be. The bright reward of faith and love. And then listen to this last stanza. As Newton and Cooper uh, address the seed of the serpent. Cleave to the world, you sordid worms. They really said that. (laughs) Contented, lick your native dust. You know, the serpent, dust shall be his food. But God shall fight with all his storms against the idol of your trust. I'm going to read that again because it's such a great statement. Cleave to the world, you sordid worms. Contented, lick your native dust. But God shall fight with all his storms against the idol of your trust. Even there, there's a call to heed the gospel, isn't there? There's a call for them to recognize that their idols are going to be destroyed by the living God. And their heads are going to be crushed like their father, the devil. So there's an offer for them to turn and be saved. So how do we respond to 11, 7 through 10? The remnant has been saved. The rest has been hardened. I'm going to give you three applications. Number one, and this really goes with what I was saying earlier about not making assumptions. Let God be God. Let God be the judge. Number two, I think we should ask this question. If God is sovereign over all these things, if God is sovereign over who rejects the gospel and and who doesn't, there, there are two questions that we can ask in response. Number one, how do I give thanks now? If this is what God has done, how do I give thanks now? Number two, what does it look like for me to be godly now? In, in view of God's sovereignty, what, what's my responsibility? My responsibility is to give thanks and to be godly. That's my responsibility. And then I think we also have great reason to hope. Um, as in, in this conversation that I listened to this morning between Dr. and Mrs. York, um, Dr. York talked about how his wife's father, Ta- Tanya's father, was a very hard man. He was mean. He never went to church. He, and uh, he said, this is, these are the words he said to his wife. He said, there's stuff from your childhood. And then he said, we're just going to leave it at that. There's stuff from your childhood. And... Dr. York talked about how they prayed for him for 35 years. And in his early 80s, they took him on a mission trip with them to Brazil. And they, they sort of enticed him with this talk about how they were going to go fishing. And, but he went to Brazil, and he saw those people worshiping. It, it reminded me of Matt's testimony. He, he said what struck him, Matt said uh, what struck him uh, when, he, when he went to this meeting was was Christians praising God. And Tanya York's father saw these Christians worshiping, even though it was in Portuguese. And, and at one point, they related that, that uh, he turned to his daughter and he said, there's only one word on that screen that I recognize. They were projecting the words of the song up on the screen. And he said, it's the word Jesus. And she said, she said I said to him, that's the one word that you need. And then they talked about how they got back and he didn't talk about the fishing. He talked about the way those Brazilians, they really believed what they said. They really worshiped. And, and he came to faith. They, they prayed for him for 35 years. And then he believed. 
You know, tonight we're going to go out through this neighborhood. I don't know if you've had this experience, but uh, yesterday and last week, my, my family and I, we went out through the neighborhood, and it, it's, it's not all that encouraging, you know? You kind of look at these people and you think, man, these people are a long way from the gospel. To me, looks to me like they're a long way from the gospel. To God, they're no further from the gospel than any of us. And if, if Tanya York's father can be, can be saved, any of these people can be saved. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Dr. York said to his wife, rather than hold things against your dad, you chose to love him and show him grace. How did you do that? She said immediately, almost before he even got the words out of, out of his mouth, how could you not? She said, you know what's at stake, and you know what you've received. How could you not? How could you not? The grace of God is that good. Let's pray. Father, we pray that the sordid worms would not cleave to their native dust. Lord, we know that every one of us can say, such a worm was I. And you turned our hearts. You opened our eyes. You caused our ears to hear. And Lord, we believe that you're good, and we believe that you will bring to completion at the day of Christ Jesus the good work that you've begun Lord, I pray that you would give each of us such a love for one another that any impatience with the slowness of sanctification, any, any sense of disgust at our perception of somebody else's hypocrisy, Lord, I pray that you would just melt all that by your love and your grace. I pray, Father, that whatever wrongs may exist in this room that, that one of us may have perpetrated against another, Lord, I pray that your grace would be as strong in our lives as it was in Tanya York's, and that, that we would be able not to hold anything against one another, and that we would feel what she felt. How could we not forgive in light of God's grace? Lord, help us Help us to love one another in response to your grace. And Father, I pray that you would make this grace so real in our lives and so powerful in our lives that we speak to the people that seem least likely to hear and believe and be liberated and be freed. We speak to them with confidence and boldness because we're so certain that you're able and Father, I, I pray that you would also give us confidence that in every age, you have your people, and they're not bowing the knee to Baal. Lord, keep us from panicking that the church is apostate, or that the gospel's going to be lost, or the sky's going to fall in some way. Make us confident that you're reserving your people, and they're not bowing. And Lord, help us to be faithful where we are. Help us to love you with all our might. We, we present all these requests to you in the name of Jesus. Amen.